This is the Author Archive podcast. I'm David Freeman today talking to Alison Weir. I recorded this conversation when her book Henry VIII, King and Court was first published. Now you can get it as an MP3, a CD, you can get it as a Kindle, as an audio book, hardback and paperback. So it's still going strong. Henry VIII, King and Court. And it puts the life of Henry VIII, the monarch, in the middle of the court and it's ceremonial. Everything about his life was ceremonial. A lot of people have in, this, in their minds this image of Charles Lawton throwing chicken legs over his shoulder and the king sitting you know, at a table very informally. But his life wasn't like that. Ceremony and protocol governed every single aspect, even down to going to the loo. It was all very oh, yes, because he had a man. What was he called? He was called the groom of the stall. Now, actually, he was a very important gentleman at court. He was the head of the privy chamber. That's the department of the service serving the king's personal needs. But he also, his function was also to attend the king whenever he went to the loo. And, that, and he had to stand there and hand him the, the rag, you know, when he'd finished. <laughs> so, Henry VIII, would he ever have time on his own? No. He would always have somebody in attendance. He even um, went at night time, there would be somebody sleeping inside his chamber or out or just outside, but more often than not inside on a pallet bed. If he wished to visit his wife, a conjugal visit at night, he went in procession to do so. And, and yeoman warders stood outside the door with, with you know, cross pikes, you know, while he was there and then escorted him back afterwards. Nothing, no aspect of his life was private. He actually was the first king to really cherish his privacy. And because of him, the private apartments became increasingly complex and more and more private. But that doesn't mean the king was in them on his own. It means that he was in them with more and more, with very, very favoured people in attendance. So are we looking at a time of flux? Because somewhere in here you say that life before that had been in the big hall kind of thing. Yes. You're, you're going back a little bit a little bit earlier in history, but yes, in medieval times and, and up to late medieval times, the emphasis of royal life was on the great hall of the palace or castle, wherever the king happened to be staying. And that would be where life was communally lived. The king would sit at the head table and, and other people would sit lower down according to rank. And sometimes the king's, you know, the, the, the king's servants and, and even, even the councillors would even sleep in that hall. The king would have a chamber to himself. But life was lived basically centred on the great hall. By Henry VIII, time, royal lodgings are changing and they're, they're, become, they're, they're showing an increasing uh, appreciation of the monarch's need for privacy in his personal life, but also for public ceremonial. So you would start by going into the Great Hall. That would be the room that would impress the ambassadors and visitors to the court. And then you would go into the guard chamber, or what was called the watching chamber, where the yeoman of the guard would stand line, lined up against the walls. They were ostensibly there, obviously, to protect the king. And that, most people could go in there. But beyond that was what we would call the throne room and what was then known as the presence chamber. And that's where the king held court. Now. Uh, you had to be of a certain rank or have a good reason for going into that room. But beyond that door was a little passage and beh behind that was the privy chamber, a room or series of rooms where the king lived his private life. Here would be his state bedchamber, but beyond it would be a private bedchamber where he actually slept. He was undressed and he did all his, his arising and dressing in the state bedchamber, but he went beyond that into the private room where he actually slept. 
And this man, I hadn't realised, this isn't a man with just a townhouse and a country house. This no. man has loads. So does he take this way of life? Is it architecturally catered for wherever he goes? Yes, it is. Henry, during the course of his reign, came to own 70 houses. Some he inherited from his father, some he built, and some were dissolved monasteries that he converted into palaces. And he spent thousands, if not millions of pounds, converting them into this new arrangement of first-floor staterooms progressing, progressing in importance as you walk through them. And this, this arrangement featured in all of his houses. By the end of his reign, the Great Hall had become obsolete. It had become virtually the staff canteen, and new houses that were built were not built with Great Halls. Hampton Court, the one at Hampton Court was the last one Henry built, and it was basically the staff canteen. <laughs> The court, and there's so much to talk about, courtly love now round the court. What did that actually mean? Was it kind of high-level flirting? Yes, it was. It was an aristocratic game and it had been going on for centuries. It originated in, in, in the south of France in the 12th century with the art of the troubadours and it was a, a sort of a, a counter-effect of the feudal society wherein the man was always the dominant master, woman was very submissive. And But it, it, it turned this on its head and it was so, so that the woman becomes the mistress, the man becomes the servant. Of course things change when people got married, but in the game of courtly love, marriage wasn't taken account of. Often the woman was an object of desire, she was unattainable, she was often married, and the servant could be her knight, her knight or he could be a, a, you know, a, a young squire at court, and he would aspire to her love, but he, in some cases, he knew he would never achieve it. You'd write poems and there were, you know, the assignations and that, and in some cases, of course, it was a good excuse for adultery. Well, Henry... <clears throat> In, in, involve himself in all of this? Oh, yes, he did. He conducted all his courtships, according to this. If you read all his the 17 letters that survived to Anne Boleyn, you will see he refers to her as my mistress and my friend. Now, that doesn't mean mistress in the physical sense. It means mistress as opposed to master. And he would sign himself your servant, HR. He put himself in the, pose, in, the, in, in the position of being a suitor for her hand in the very traditional sense. Some of this cult of courtly love is still with us today in a very diluted form, but it set the basis for courtships and partnerships in the Western world. I also love the fact that you have the leisure centre sort of <laughs> coming in. Yes, you do. Yes, the leisure complex. It was slightly yes. different from our modern leisure centres because it was centred on um, tournament grounds, you know, tilt yards, and on bowling alleys and tennis courts, or tennis plays as they were called. And these were all for the recreation of the young men of the courts who couldn't always be occupied with martial feats or, or going to war. So they, their boredom and their raging hormones were kept contained with these leisure complexes, which, of course, arose from the king's own sport interest because he was a great all-round sportsman and he, he he's quoted in here as <clears throat> saying actually I'd rather go hunting than anything Oh, yes, yes. Hunting was his absolute passion. And he would be at it several hours a day, wear out ten horses. And he, you know, and he used to sneak out. He hated doing any government business when he was young. And he had special stairways and stairs and doors doors built so he could sneak out. No one would know when he'd gone. And his councillors complained quite a lot. And going hunting was a good excuse for putting off business and putting it off again and again and again. And that, so he made a martyrdom of the sport of hunting. And he'd come back late for lunch. And would, would lunch be a big affair? Lunch would, well, yes, the main meal of the day was taken at, at, in, in, in the middle of the day. And the king, this is quite a staggering fact I uncovered, that the, the, the average cost of the king's main meal was over £1,200 in, our, in, in modern, modern values. A day? A day. 
Yes, because it was considered that the higher the rank, and of course the king was at the highest rank, the better the ingredients. And you're talking about ingredients like spices and sugar and, and things like that that are very, very expensive and they're imported. And that accounts for the cost of the meal. And it was all served with due ceremony. And he had his own kitchen, he had his own privy kitchen. There were several kitchens, huge kitchen complexes within the palace. And the main kitchen served all the general staff. There was a lord's side kitchen which provided better food for the lords and the best food of all provided by French cooks was in the king's own privy kitchen and the queen also had her own privy kitchen. And of course it could suit the king's schedule, you know, he could order his meals at, you know, at different times from the rest of the court, which he did, and he ate privately. So was he a bit of a francophile? Because didn't, didn't the, the French royals send him some wild boar to hunt? Yes, he did. Yes, the King Francis of France, you know, because wild boar were quite rare in England mm. at that time. And of course, hunting the wild boar was a, a challenge fit for a king. So he had these boars sent over on a ship and they all let loose. And Henry went, hunt, went, you know, went after them and really enjoyed it. But he did have a, a, you know, a great respect for all things French, having been on the continent early in his reign and seen the effects of the French Renaissance, which obviously derived from the Italian Renaissance. And when he came back, this became an absolute craze at the English court, you know, wanting to ape all things French in styles of dress and architecture and food and wines. And so he became, in, in some ways, a Francophile, though in many ways, I mean, he considered he, he actually was the rightful king of France. So he, he would like it both ways. He wasn't <clears throat> crippled by self-doubt. Not at all, no. He was supremely confident. But the little things, there's a sentence I remember that... Um, matters of conscience. He was sort of almost timorous that, it, that his conscience did, that could play, as a young man, it could play. I think his conscience was more, more of a sort of a political tool in many ways. I mean, he goes on and on and on about his conscience. Obviously. <laughs> <laughs> yes, if you read all his letters and his remarks and his instructions, uh, we hear most about his conscience in connection with the, the great matter of his divorce or the, the annulment of his marriage mm. to Catherine of Aragon. And his conscience had told him that it was a sin to live with his brother's wife, that even the, if the, though the Pope had given a dispensation. The Pope had not really had the power to do so. That was the revolutionary challenge that was Henry sent out. Popes for centuries had given dispensations to allow people within forbidden degrees of kinship to marry. But Henry actually turned around and said, no, the Pope hasn't got the power to do this. And that, in its time, was quite revolutionary. And so we hear a lot about the king's conscience, but it became rather flexible because he was quite happy to marry Anne Boleyn, whose sister had been his mistress, which placed her in the same degree of affinity. Yeah, well, things change. Well, yes, I suppose they do. But he was still, you know, going on and on about this conscience, you know, way after this. Uh, I mean, this big thing, what's the, what's the phrase used for it? The, the, his divorce? What is it? The, the great matter. The great yes, it, matter. That's what it became known as. How long did that go on for? It went on for six, seven years. And during that time, most of that time, Anne Boleyn was holding him off. And uh, he, was, he was mad for her, absolutely passionately in love with her. The letters are evidence enough for that, and so are out the, the reports of outsiders. Well, but, but now, you know, if, if he'd <clears> written <throat> to a modern agony aunt saying, you know, I've got, would, it, would it be possible to say, actually, this isn't love, you're just in lust with her, you know, you're just lusting? It's possible, yes, but if you read the, uh, the, the reports of, of, you know, ambassadors and observers, they say he cannot be without her for one minute. He thinks of nothing, he speaks of nothing but Anne. You know, Anne is the driving... It was, she was an obsession, not just lust. I mean, it was everything, the whole lot. And if you read the letters, they're very romantic. They also have an erotic undertone in them, which I've actually quoted in bits in the book. 
I mean, is it possible to decode the, uh, the eroticism of the day, the language that we've been used? Some of it, yes, but not all. But not all. So a lot of it is, is sort of very colloquialisms that sometimes, you know, the idiom has gone from the language. But most of it, yes, you can. You can understand. You can see that they were, they were, they were getting as far as heavy petting. You can work that out. But, I mean, there's, um, beyond that, she would not let him go until the right tactical moment. And she got pregnant very quickly. Then he had to marry her and everything moved very, very quickly. Because oh, I mean, Philip Larkin once said that mm -hmm. uh, sex had been invented in 1963. The Tudors actually were well into it, weren't oh, they? Oh, yes, they were indeed, yes. And, I mean, if you read about Henry, um, they're, they're, Henry was a very discreet man in sexual matters, or he liked to think he was. But there were enough snippets of information to prove that Henry was having a really good time on the side throughout most of, you know, most of his marriages. And uh, there's enough evidence. If you take all the evidence together, it shows that Henry was um, fairly promiscuous. Um, he, every time one of his wives got pregnant, he usually strayed because, of course, sex was taboo mm. within pregnancy. And so he, that was his right, you know, as husband and king, he could do what he likes. If, when his first wife complained, the first time this happened, um, he was very upset and put out, more because he'd been found out than anything else, you know, and it made a fuss through the court. But um, after that, she learned to keep quiet. <clears throat> and then when it got to Anne Boleyn's turn, she was told to shut her eyes as her betters had done. That was it. <laughs> you know, it's not your concern. You should act with dignified restraint and ignore it. Alison Weir talking to me about her book about Henry VIII. Henry VIII, King and Court. This is the Author Archive podcast.